What are common questions you've always wanted to ask a dermatologist? How did the University of Utah School of Medicine help one of my classmates become a dermatologist? What is Mohs Surgery? Today on Talking Missions and Med Student Life. Helping you prepare for one of the most rewarding careers in the world. This is Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with your host, the Dean of Admissions at the University of Utah School of Medicine, Dr. Benjamin Chan. Welcome to another edition of Talking Admissions and Med Student Life. I have a great guest today, uh, Dr. Jason Hansen. Uh, we're actually classmates way back in the day. So went to medical school together. You graduated in 2003? Yep, 2003. I, gra- I graduated in 2004, and you went on to become a dermatologist. Tell me about that. Why did you choose to become a dermatologist? You know, Dr. Chan, it's a great question. Um, probably one that's facing a lot of medical students. I went in, into medical school thinking I would become a general surgeon, uh, kind of fascinated by surgery. I'd been exposed to some general surgery procedures in college and thought that sounded really interesting. So my first two years of medical school kind of consumed by the classwork mainly at the time. There was an opportunity to actually shadow some community physicians, and one of the community dermatologists was on this list, and I ended up spending a day with him in his clinic and saw how he went from patient to patient, making a number of the diagnoses based on clinical appearance of different lesions, rashes, and then he would go over to the microscope and analyze tissue under the microscope and also had the addition of several surgical procedures. And I just found myself really mesmerized by this type of a practice and was captivated captivated by it from there on. And So how did the University of Utah School of Medicine, how did it prepare you to become a dermatologist? Well, the university I thought was very supportive. I actually was fortunate to be able to work with Dr. John Zone, Dr. Kristen Leiferman, both of whom... Uh, directly supported some research we did on immunofluorescence. And I had a great classmate, Dr. Rustin Ross, and he and I uh, collaborated on a study in that way. Also was able to work in clinic quite a bit with Dr. Gerald Kruger, a mm-hmm. uh, great mm, worldwide psoriasis expert. And they're very supportive through all of that training and took a real personal interest in me. Okay. And then uh, if I recall correctly, you matched Iowa. That's right. Your, your general dermatology residency. And that was how many years? Four? Was that five? Right. So the residency's four. I did an internship year at LDS Hospital, a transitional year, and then went on to do three more at the University of Iowa. And then afterwards, you did a fellowship. Tell me about your fellowship. So during dermatology residency, you get exposure certainly to dermatology, dermatopathology, Mohs surgery. And I really had not had any exposure to Mohs surgery besides... And Mohs is spelled M-O-H-S. That's right. Okay. spelled M-O-H-S right. after Dr. Frederick Mohs okay. from Wisconsin, who okay. described the procedure back in the 30s. So in residency, uh, surgically, this Mohs technique is used to remove skin cancers, analyze them under the microscope at the same time, and then reconstruct the wound. So it's a lot of what I loved about dermatology from the beginning, how things looked clinically on a patient, subsequently how they looked under a microscope, and then reconstructing wounds had so many exciting elements to it. So I pursued that further after residency with a fellowship program in North Carolina. So now you only do just Mohs, correct? Um, My practice is basically a referral practice um, from dermatologists and some other clinicians to Mm -hmm. do Mohs surgery on certain more aggressive skin cancers. So in a way, you got to kind of do your surgery, like your love of surgery combined with your love of skin, as it were. I think that's how it turned out. Okay. Yeah, it's not the path I originally had had intended, but in Mm -hmm. hindsight, I think it worked out great. It's a good fit for me. Well, since we're friends, Dr. Hansen, 
I have a list of standard questions. I kind of asked around the office. I'm going to go talk to Dr. Hans, a dermatologist. <laughs> so here are some fun and serious questions for you. All right. So you can either give your first professional opinion or you can give the American Board of Dermatology's opinion. All okay. right. So um, popping zits. I know a lot of teenagers do it. What do you say? Popping zits. It, it, it's an epidemic. Okay. The zit popping, <laughs> absolute epidemic. Um, I am, many would refer to me as a glorified zit popper, although I don't find that to be typically I my daily ne- routine. I would never say never that. Never think that. No, no of course not. Um, popping zits. It just depends on the zit. I think people find a lot of personal satisfaction in just expressing the contents of a zit. Okay. But you can overdo it. Okay. And there's those that overdo it. Okay. But popping a zit here and there, why not? It's fine. All right. Good. All right, another question for you. In the other day, I was walking through the mall, and I have a newborn daughter. You have daughters. I started to hear this crying noise, and it was this little girl in distress, and she was sitting in the middle of the mall at one of those kiosks, getting her ears pierced. So you as a dermatologist or the ABD, is there a certain age limit that you recommend uh, that uh, children do or do not get their ears pierced? Because I know this, I get this question sometimes um, as a child psychiatrist. People are always asking my opinion. So, so what, what is your opinion on this? Ear piercing. There was one study, dermatology study, that came out that suggested the earlier ears are pierced, the less likely to develop keloids. I think it's a personal decision mainly. Um, your propensity to keloids varies person to person, family to family, ethnicity. All those things affect that. But I do have a personal story about ear piercing that I really love. Okay. Um, So I had a daughter. She was eight. And we took her to a local place to get her ears pierced professionally. My wife took her. And when she came home, I noticed the piercings were not level. One piercing was clearly two millimeters higher on the earlobe than the other. All of us us clearly (laughs) distraught by this asymmetrical piercing. Mm -hmm. So... Much to her chagrin, our eight-year-old, I said, you know what, we've got to fix this, and I think it's better to fix it sooner than later. Um, And so I learned a little bit about piercing that day, and we removed the piercing that was too high, made a new mark on the ear where it should have been, and purely with icing the ear from both sides, I'm not recommending this as a procedure anyone try at home, of course, right? Of course, yes. And um, we took the recently placed piercing and it has a sharp end on it, and the piercing itself is used um, to create the hole. And we pierced it through the new two-millimeter lower appropriate location. And with icing the ear, it was painless. So I vowed I will do all of my children's piercings from here on. So what age do you pierce them? So we've done it at age eight. Okay. And it's really more of just a the family kind of rallies around that. It's mm-hmm. kind of a fun thing for them to look forward to. Um, like a ceremony you, almost <laughs> right <laughs> a deep yes yes a very significant ceremony yeah so there is some evidence to suggest doing it earlier you may reduce the risk of keloidal scarring mm-hmm. um, but i don't in most cases it probably doesn't matter so i'm going to segue off that question these are some fun questions so gauges those are the very large earrings that i sometimes see young people wear but then i've also heard that when you take those out it's it's very, how should I say, deforming. So are they are those easy to repair if people decide not to keep their gauges? I think the gauges are very deforming. They okay. do stretch the tissue a lot. Okay. My 
staff will tell you one of my favorite places to work for skin cancer is on the ear, particularly the ear lobe, because it presents some really fun reconstruction options that aren't available elsewhere. That being said, the gauge with how much the tissue is stretched and deformed and often thinned out, it may not provide adequate tissue to reconstruct to the pre-gauge appearance. So I haven't had patients that have approached me regarding having gauges um, revised or removed, but I'd imagine as time goes on, more and more people are going to be looking to have that fixed. So when your daughter asks you for gauges when she turns 12, what are you going to say? At age 12, if she's asking for a gauge, I think it'll be a a deeper discussion about (laughs) what possible long-term consequences and whether or not that's the right way to go. Awesome. All right. Next question. I'm going to have my piece of paper here. All right. Tattoos. How large does a tattoo have to be before you as a dermatologist feel that you can't be removed? Or is there is there no limit to tattoo removal? Yeah, I don't do tattoo removal currently, but I have had some experience in it with um, earlier lasers. The professional quality of the tattoo and the colors within the tattoo very much affect the ability of laser to remove the tattoo. So what colors are best to remove? So best to remove, I would say, is a very poor quality tattoo that has the blues and blacks that's superficially placed. Those can be removed with laser fairly well. But I think media and advertising Mm -hmm. would make people believe that all tattoos can just be removed almost like they're erased. Most tattoos that are done professionally with a number of colors are very difficult to completely remove. Dr. Hansen, I'm learning so much today. We're halfway through our questions. So... um, Tanning salons, what's your opinion of them? Has the ABD ABD taken official position? Well, tanning salons are interesting. You know, I've had members of my own family approach me, and they've not been interested in tanning because they know the risk of skin cancer and the implications of that long term. So they've gone more towards the spray tans. Mm Mm-hmm. My approach has been just embrace the color of your skin. It is what it is. <laughs> we should get a t-shirt company that says embrace the color of your skin. I like that. Just yeah. embrace it. It yeah. is what it is. Mm-hmm. And you can try to change the color of it. The safe method would certainly be spray tanning. Mm-hmm. Really, besides an expense, it's not doesn't pose any health risks. Because tanning salons, there's a, definitely a higher increase in skin cancers, melanomas, things like that, correct? There yeah. appears to be a correlation. Okay. Yeah. And I, I've... I've noticed they're, they're starting to gain in popularity, despite what the ABD, ABD, I can't say that very well, ABD is trying to advocate. Um, because I'm driving around more, I see them in like strip malls, and it's like, you know, Waikiki Tanning Salon or, you know, all this stuff. So, okay. Yeah, I'm still surprised by the number of people that seek tanning, and there's mm-hmm. a lot of social pressure to it. Yeah. And a lot of misperceptions about there's that there is such a thing as a safe tan. So going back to most surgery, like the most of your most of the patients, all the patients, um, the reason why they're coming to get Mohs is because of these cancer type issues, correct? Right. Yeah. The most common cancers we face: basal cell carcinoma, squamous cell carcinoma. So do I mean in your official recommendations? Do you kind of tell people, hey, I'm the Mohs guy. I officially recommend no more tanning. Or, or no more tanning salons. Is that kind of part of the discharge instructions, as it were? Yeah. Okay. Often I end up endorsing someone's spouse. Usually the spouse is, says, you know, I've been telling them not to tan for years. And I say, yeah, mm-hmm. you know, they're right. I think uh, tanning beds don't don't help here and are likely going to worsen your burden of skin cancer. Um, going off that, sun tanning lotion. What's a good sunscreen? What, what sunscreen do you recommend? Well, you want a broad spectrum UVA, UVB blocker. Okay. For me, it seems like the biggest thing is avoiding 
the sunscreen running into my eyes. I like to protect my face. That's usually the most exposed, most sensitive. So something that blocks UVA, the blocks UVB that your skin tolerates well, that doesn't run into your eyes. So a non-greasy formulation, waterproof, and then test a number of mm-hmm. different products. There's a lot out there um, that claim to be, you know, tear, don't cause tears, non-irritating, and there's a lot of products I think that work well. Dr. Hansen did not know I was asking any of these questions, and he's doing a really great <laughs> job. All right, let's have some silly ones. All right, um, for all the people that play pickup basketball, shirts versus skins, is there an aerodynamic advantage to not wearing clothing while playing sports? I think clearly. <laughs> clearly. I think I think historically the skins have usually won those games, and I think okay. we should apply that to other sports. <laughs> Very good. I thought when we first started this podcast, you're going to tell me a story about why you became a dermatologist, because you had a really great experience playing pickup basketball in your teenage years or something like that. You know, most yeah. of my dermatology exposure as a kid was the classic seeing my dermatologist mm-hmm. for my own acne being scared to death about the prospects of them freezing a wart on me mm. um, and uh, Accutane for acne as a kid. Is Accutane still on the market? Is that still? Accutane remains on the market. Okay. And really in certain and many difficult cases of acne ends up being the drug of choice. It's direct association with birth defects and the implications of that have made access to it very regimented and restricted but it remains a very powerful acne medication. Because I remember growing up, and I don't see those anymore, like those, like, I can't remember, the, the OxyPads, those little, little, like those little commercials, they would, you know, and then I, I think it preys on all teenagers' anxieties. And, you know, so like those little, like they would like say rub at night, and then you would like look at it and have a little bit of dirt. Do they still have those? Or is it more like potions and creams? Yeah, I think, yeah. I think proactive is like what the brand all of us think of. You know, okay. you've got... Adam Levine now advertising Proactive, and I think the revenue from Proactive far exceeds that of Accutane. And for very mild cases of acne, probably works pretty well. Well, Dr. Hansen, I'd like to thank you for coming on the podcast. It's been great. I'm going to be checking in with you on a regular basis to get more of my dermatological questions answered. All right? It's been great. Thank you, Dr. Chan. Thanks for listening to Talking Admissions and Med Student Life with Dr. Benjamin Chan, the ultimate resource to help you on your journey to and through medical school. A production of the Scope Health Sciences Radio, online at thescoperadio.com.